Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello, everyone. We are back from kind of a long break throughout the summer, um, and we're gearing up for the school year. Uh, I got students coming back. We're going to start an online school here uh, in this next week, and so I'm going to start putting out episodes again. I'm a little bit behind. Um, The school year starts with Alma 17, and uh, so there will be a little bit of a catch-up period, but we should get up to speed really quickly. Today, we're jumping into the book of Alma. I've already produced an Introduction to Alma episode, but it's been a while. So just to offer a little refresh, the book of Mosiah wrapped up at a pivot point in Nephite society. Over a period of about 27 years, the arrival of the church in Zarahemla has prompted a series of societal shifts, including a division between believers and unbelievers, a negotiated division of power between the king and the church, the conversion of a small group of Nephite elites, including the son of the high priest and the sons of the king, missionary efforts by those elites throughout the Nephite kingdom, and especially a crisis launched by the departure of the sons of Mosiah on an extended mission to the Lamanites, which together with the translation of the Jaredite plates prompts the disillusion of the kingdom and the introduction of a new form of government known as the reign of the judges. So that's a lot. As part of this shift, Alma, the son of the founder of the church, inherits the Nephite relics and records is chosen as the new chief judge, and inherits the role of high priest from his father. So we begin the book of Alma with Alma as this confluence of religious and political authority. Let's start off by looking at verses 1 through 15 of Alma chapter 1. And we learn right away that King Mosiah has died. He has continued as king some years after proposing the shift from the monarchy to the reign of the judges. But unlike most kings, Mosiah's legacy isn't going to be a dynasty. It's the law that he has given to his people. We've talked a bit about the name Mosiah and what we can learn from it before, but I believe it was Hugh Nibley who first pointed out that Mosiah may very well be a combination of two names, Moses and Josiah. Moses, of course, was the great lawgiver who led the Israelites in their exodus out of Egypt. Josiah, maybe lesser known to most modern Latter-day Saint readers, was the king of Judah up until about a decade before Lehi and his family fled Jerusalem. He was known for enacting major reforms during his reign, with special emphasis on the role of the law and the temple. So while Mosiah I very much fulfills the role of the leader of the Exodus. Mosiah II, who we're talking about right now, is a lawgiver and a reformer. It would be nice if there were always clean transitions of power in our world. 
And it certainly seems like Mosiah did his best to make that happen. But transitions of power often bring intensified conflict. In Alma's first year as chief judge, we see that that holds true in this case. Immediately, we are introduced to a man named Nehor. He's big, he's dynamic, and he sees an opportunity in the model of the church. Mormon tells us, And he had gone about among the people preaching to them that which he termed to be the word of God, bearing down against the church, declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular, and they ought not to labor with their hands, but they ought to be supported by the people. Nehor has other challenging teachings, but it's telling that Mormon puts this front and center. So let's make sure that we understand what is being said here. What is different about Nehor's message from that of the church? For the church, from the first days at the Waters of Mormon, the organizing belief of this little community was in the power of the self-sacrificing Messiah and his resurrection. The way to enter the covenant community was to ritualistically enact that self-sacrifice and the resurrection through baptism. And as that logic of the Messiah was carried throughout every walk of life in this community, it looked like the power of weakness. It elevated mourning with people, comforting, being the evidence in each other's lives of the Messiah, including with meeting each other's basic human needs. The first test of this new type of community came when in the land of Helam, the church asked Alma to be their king. He reminded his people at that moment that one person shouldn't be viewed as being superior to another, especially those who are in positions of power. Think of why. In addition to the covenant, Alma might feel so strongly about this. He was one of Noah's priests before conversion. He not only witnessed, but participated in the concentration of power and wealth in his community, and he knows the wickedness that comes with that sort of structural inequality. So let's get back to Nehor and the religious movement that he's leading. I imagine if we were living through this period with the Nephites, we would see just how stark of a contrast there is between what Nehor is saying and the type of community and lifestyle that he is forming around those ideas versus those of the church. Before we go too far down that path, though, let's learn a little more about Nehor's message. Mormon gives us more insight into Nehor's message. And I'm quoting here. He also testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day and that they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice for the Lord had created all men and had also redeemed all men, and in the end, all men should have eternal life. This might sound like a fresh idea for the Nephites, but I don't know that it's dramatically different from the type of thinking that we saw out of Noah and his priests, except for the fact that Nehor is now building off of the model of a church and not of a kingdom. One of the surprising things that we saw out of Noah's people is that they were being exploited and yet were totally bought in. The people were actually the ones who turned over Abinadi to Noah and the priests. Now, how did Noah's priests pull that off? How did they exploit the people and win their loyalty? They taught them that they had already arrived. 
that they had already fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of the coming kingdom of God. In other words, Noah's priests taught the people that they were saved. I don't think that's really different than Nehor's message, but Nehor has adapted it to the model of this extra-governmental confessional community that we call a church. But we'll see that Nehor's message and movement will actually be put to work to try and re-establish a monarchy placing some people above the others. Nehor's movement gains legs as he starts to build wealth and power in the Nephite community. Mormon tells us that as he's spreading this competing religious movement, he encounters an old friend of ours, Gideon. This is the same Gideon who almost killed Noah and who helped to liberate Limai's people. I would love to have a readout of the dialogue between Nehor and Gideon, but all we get is that Gideon was able to withstand Nehor, which was probably no small feat. I imagine Nehor was a pretty engaging speaker. He's a big guy with fancy clothes and a message of vanity, and Gideon is now an older man, likely of pretty humble circumstances, and is a teacher in the church. Mormon tells us, now because Gideon withstood him with the words of God, he was wroth with Gideon and drew his sword and began to smite him. Now Gideon, being stricken with many years, therefore he was not able to withstand his blows, therefore he was slain by the sword. This is a big deal. Gideon was beloved. So the people of the church bring Nehor to Alma, the high priest of the church, and the chief judge of the government. We don't get any of Nehor's words here, just Alma's judgment. Nehor is guilty of the crime of priestcraft. Priestcraft is mentioned only twice before this in the Book of Mormon. In 2 Nephi 10, when Jacob is describing the leadership in Jerusalem, and in 2 Nephi 26, when Nephi is quoting the Lord about the state of the last days. In verses 29 through 31, here Nephi actually defines priestcraft for us, saying, He commandeth that there shall be no priestcrafts. For behold, priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. Behold, the Lord hath forbidden this thing, wherefore the Lord hath given a commandment, that all men should have charity, which charity is love. And except they should have charity, they would not suffer the laborer in Zion to perish. But the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion, for if they labor for money, they shall perish. So let's take that as our working definition and make sure we understand it before moving on. Priestcraft is something that you're going to hear talked about from time to time in church culture, usually referring to someone who's making money in an ecclesiastical role. That's probably too simplistic of an understanding. For Nephi, the issue isn't money, it's love. Immediately preceding these verses in 2 Nephi 26, Nephi teaches that all are alike unto God. And if you listen to our episode on that verse, you'll know that he feels the need to say that because he's foreseen that Latter-day Gentiles will grind upon the faces of the poor because of the pride of their eyes. Put in this context, Priestcraft is an apt description of anyone who uses the gospel to create systems of inequality among God's children. The opposite of priestcraft, Nephi says, is charity. The other point that he uses that word is in 2 Nephi 33 in his farewell. He says that he has charity for both the Jew and the Gentile. That seems to track with his statement that all are alike unto God, 
Charity is about using the love of God to overcome separation and inequality. Priestcraft is the effort to institute and perpetuate separation and inequality in one's own behalf. Charity is everything. Love and action to transform the human family. Without it, no amount of success matters. Except that they should have charity, they were nothing. Getting back to 2 Nephi 26, the litmus test for charity is that they would not suffer the laborer in Zion to perish. How do you know if someone has charity? Well, they act to nourish and sustain in real ways. The laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion, for if they labor for money, they shall perish. There's so much truth wrapped up in that sentence. Zion is life. Priestcraft is death. So with Nephi's definition, let's get back to Alma 1. Alma says something surprising to Nehor. He accuses him of being the first to introduce priestcrafts among the people. Now, if Alma is referring to all of Nephite history, that's just not true. There have been many examples thus far in the Book of Mormon of priestcraft. Noah and his priests are some of the most obvious. But remember, there have been a lot of changes since the church and Limhi's people arrived in Zarahemla about 30 years earlier. And I think Alma is referring to that time. And why is priestcraft so dangerous to Alma? For the same reason that it's dangerous to Nephi. Priestcraft is death. Priestcraft will lead to destruction. That's what happened to Noah in his kingdom when he built up his entire society on inequality. And that's what's going to happen to Zarahemla. In other words, since the introduction of the church in Zarahemla, they haven't had an example of a competing religious movement trying to generate inequality. The irony of all of this is that Nehor's message was that all mankind should be saved at the last day, but he used that feigned equality to generate wealth and power for himself. Not only has Nehor tried to create inequality by appealing to the gospel, but he's done it by violence. And under Nephite law, religious movements are protected, but Nehor killed a man, so Alma sentences him to death. One of my areas of focus in school was religious conflict, so I studied a lot of religious movements that included violence. Alma's execution of Nehor may have been lawful, but its outcome was predictable. In verses 16 through 28, we learn this did not put an end to the spread of priestcraft throughout the land, for there were many who loved the vain things of the world, and they went forth preaching false doctrines, and this they did for the sake of riches and honor. Nevertheless, they durst not lie, if it were known, for fear of the law, for liars were punished. Therefore they pretended to preach according to their belief, and now the law could have no power on a man for his belief. And they durst not steal for fear of the law, for such were punished. Neither durst they rob nor murder, for he that murdered was punishable by death. Nehor may be dead, but his movement already has legs. And the response to his execution is that it continues to spread. In verses 19 through 24, Mormon tells us that persecution against the church increases and that the church is under orders not to persecute in return, but people can only be pushed so far. There were many, Mormon says, among them who began to be proud and began to contend warmly with their adversaries, even under blows. Yea, they would smite one another with their fists. Now, this was the second year of the reign of Alma, or about 90 BC, and it was a cause of much affliction to the church. Yea, it was the cause of much trial with the church, for the hearts of many were hardened, and their names were blotted out, 
that they were remembered no more among the people of God, and also many withdrew themselves from among them. We aren't on the ground during all of this, but we can imagine the stories that both sides were telling. On the one hand, those advocating priestcraft see the church as oppressive. The high priest of the church used his political power to kill their leader. Members of the church, initially fueled by justified grievance, begin to talk about how evil those who are persecuting them are. They see their loved ones struggling and suffering, and they can trace that suffering in a direct line back to their persecutors. Isn't it their duty to defend their families? Don't Nehor's followers deserve to be met in kind? Isn't that what's right? It all starts off pretty reasonable, but it ends with these people withdrawing themselves from the people of God. Some people use the logic that the ends justify the means. Gandhi used to say that the means dictate the end. Jesus' way of saying that would be that every seed produces fruit after its own kind. Moving on to 25 through 33, we learn that in spite of this disruptive intra-Nephite conflict, the church continued on reinforcing their ethic of equality that was first established at the Waters of Mormon. We learn that even with continued persecution, the priests left their labor to impart the word of God unto the people, and the people also left their labors to hear the word of God. And when the priests had imparted unto them the word of God, they all returned again diligently unto their labors, and the priest not esteeming himself above his hearers, for the preacher was no better than the hearer, neither was the teacher any better than the learner, and thus were all equal. And they did all impart, every man according to his strength, and they did impart of their substance, every man according to that which he had, to the poor and the needy and the sick and the afflicted, and they did not wear costly apparel, yea, they were neat and comely, and thus they did establish the affairs of the church, and thus they began to have continual peace again, notwithstanding all their persecutions. This has become par for the course for the church. Over the course of about 60 years, this church community has managed to resist the temptation to concentrate power and opportunity. Righteousness wasn't associated with wealth, and wickedness wasn't associated with poverty, and this produced a different type of community. This is the charity that Nephi described as being the opposite of priestcraft. It's the love of God producing measurable results in the community. Priestcraft and inequality produce destruction, but Mormon tells us that charity and equality result in the making of the church community exceedingly rich, having abundance of all things. And thus, in their prosperous circumstances, they did not send away any who were naked, or that were hungry, or that were athirst, or that were sick, or that had not been nourished. And they did not set their hearts upon riches. Therefore, they were liberal to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, whether out of the church or in the church, having no respect to persons as to those who stood in need. I've spoken about how there's a generational challenge facing religions throughout the West. Millennials and Gen Z are less interested in organized religion than their parents, and their parents are less interested than their parents. One of the things that keeps popping up in the research is the question of relevancy, especially with the youth today. Young people are growing up during the most secular time in history. From birth, they have one foot in the world of religion and the other foot in the secular world, and the size of those respective worlds is becoming more and more lopsided. 
this next part is going to be overly simplistic because there's no such thing as the secular world or the religious world. There are all kinds of ways of being secular and all kinds of ways of being religious. But for the sake of this point, let's oversimplify. In religion, we like to talk about the evils of an increasingly secular world, and they certainly exist. But I tend to think that people vote with their feet. The secular world is producing all kinds of amazing things right now. Things that are observable, measurable, and relevant. It's the context and the content of these kids' lives. The religious world produces as well, but its products are not so easily discernible all the time. Patience, hope, these things are real, but difficult to measure. I think that we could learn something from Alma and the church here in Alma 1. If we were to sit down and talk with Alma and ask him what was most important to the church during his time as high priest, I think we would hear some pretty familiar things. We'd hear about the covenant, about Jesus Christ and the atonement, about the word of God. Basically everything that we hear him share in his recorded sermons throughout the book of Alma. But we have to remember that our story is being told by Mormon, which means that everything that we are learning about the church was important enough to be recorded and passed down. So while Alma wants his people to understand doctrine, he seems to understand that if people leave their labor to hear preaching, but at the same time overlook the plight of the naked, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the old and the young, the bond and the free, the male and female, in the church or out of the church, then all of the talk about doctrine will seem hollow. Even in Alma's day, for the church to be relevant, the doctrine of Christ, the power of the self-sacrificing love, needs to go all the way through the community. What does the atonement look like when it becomes the logic of everything that happens in the community? It looks like taking responsibility for the well-being of others. Remember their baptismal covenant, as far as we know, is still to bear one another's burdens, mourn with those that mourn, comfort those who stand in need of comfort, and to stand as a witness of God's power to redeem. The youth's eyes are open, maybe more than we realize, maybe more than is healthy for them at such a young age. Anything that happens anywhere in the world is right in front of their eyes. I remember the first time I saw someone who had been hurt badly enough to die. What shocked me at that moment was that I wasn't really that shocked because I had seen similar things in movies. But now, these kids don't just see special effects. At any given time, they can see real death from videos taken on people's phones. We can spend all of the time we want wishing it were a different world, but that's the world, and that's what these kids are facing. I was once in a leadership meeting where we were talking about the youth, and one of the older brethren talked about preparing the youth for the world that they were going to face. And I loved this brother's urgency. But I also knew that all of the things that he was fearing about the future, they're already facing the youth. I think the answer to the question of relevancy is right here in Alma 1. We need to be able to connect doctrine, theology, these difficult to measure attributes of Christ, to real, measurable impact in the lives of everyday people. Mormon wraps up Alma 1 with a comparison between the outcomes of the type of community the church has built, one based 
on the love of God and the type of inequality and idolatry that resulted from priestcraft. Remember that the Nephite kingdom was done away with so that there could be a government that could unite the people, whether or not they were members of the church. That's getting more difficult, but Alma and the other judges are able to keep it together for five years of relative peace. But it's what scholars call a negative peace, or simply the absence of direct violence. Without real transformation, negative peace doesn't last long. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.